0: going to read together from the Gospel of Luke and Luke chapter 24, near the end of the Gospel, the story of the walk to Emmaus. These words are very familiar, but I would invite you just to listen. This is one of the strongest narrative stories in the whole of the Bible. Let's hear the Word of God. Now, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus Himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing Him. He asked them, what are are you discussing together as you walk along, and they, they stood still. Their faces is downcast. And one of them, named Cleopas, asked him, "'Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days?' "'What things?' he asked. "'About Jesus of Nazareth,' they replied. He, he, he was a prophet." They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find the body. They came and told us that they'd seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it, just as the woman had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, "'How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken.'" Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, stay with us for it's nearly evening and the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us when he talked to us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those that were with them and assembled together, saying, It's true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. And the two told what had happened to them on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Amen. The walk to Emmaus. It's one of those beautiful stories that almost a preacher hesitates to say too much about because like a a plod, you can go in and mess up this picture that is so moving. Because I think this story teaches us not just the meaning of the resurrection, but it actually invites us to feel it, to feel something of the emotion as we enter into the story. Scripture I'm struck more and more that it doesn't just apply to our minds about truth. It also begins to speak to our emotions, who we are. And often in those stories, it begins to resonate with our own walk with Jesus. It was Easter evening, and two people were walking. We're told quite explicitly they were walking seven miles That's not, I don't think, about symbolism, it's to invite you to imagine what type of conversations you would have over a seven-mile walk when you had just been through hell. As they walked, we're told that they were discussing matters. In fact, the verb that's used might even suggest that they were disputing things discussing, arguing a bit, trying to come to terms with what had just happened. The first thing that must have been overwhelming at that point was just the grief. Their friend had died. They'd been in Jerusalem just a few days, and it had all happened so fast. The arrest The trial, the crucifixion, the terror of it, the death on the Friday night, waiting on the Saturday, they couldn't travel because it was the Sabbath, and then going home on the Sunday. Bereavement and grief. Also, shock because whatever this was, it had been completely unexpected. Only a week ago, they'd come into Jerusalem, and they, these two were probably there as they shouted, Hosanna! This is the King coming. Everything's about to change. There's about to be a triumph. Something is in the air. God is going to do something. The utter shock. And then, one thing that we sometimes forget, but when you've been through grief, you know what it's about the trauma. Just all that happened. And these two people, as they walked on that road, were probably doing what many of us have done in that sort of place. They were just going over and over and over and over and telling the story again and again and again to each other with the what-ifs and the if-onlys. And there is a great sense here also of complete despair. Verse 21 says, "'But we had hoped.'" wasn't just that their friend was lost, it wasn't just the trauma, it was that for the last three years or maybe more, they had pinned their hopes on this man. They had followed him, they'd given their lives for him, they had thought and believed that he was going to change the world, that he was going to bring justice, that he was going to get rid of the Romans, that he was was going to deal with the pagans. And here he was, crushed on the cross. Now, it's tempting to think, but wait a minute, this is Easter Day, that's Good Friday talk you're doing, he's alive, the woman's been to the tomb, that was empty, hallelujah, they should be going away shouting and screaming. Well, they knew that, they knew the tomb had been found and it was empty, that Jesus wasn't there, they knew that the woman had come back with the story about angels, they'd heard all these things, but somehow, as much as they might have had hope in all of that, it wasn't real. It just brought more questions. And maybe those of us who have had journeys of faith through dark places know what that's around. Yeah, we've got the faith. Somebody's told us these things, but does it cut through? Impossible. Unreal. There's a few things that we can observe from from this story, and one is just very basically that they didn't expect Jesus to die. That wasn't the game that they thought of. And the other thing that's certainly true is they did not expect Him to rise. It's interesting that at Easter last year, Professor Alice Roberts, who is, among other things, the president of the British Humanist Society, put out a tweet which said this, just a reminder today, dead people don't come back to life. Now, number one, that's incredibly rude and disrespectful to put out. Number two, by the way, if you're trying to win uh, debates on theology with people, that stuff doesn't work, and Christians should know that when they try the opposite things. But number three, I'm left thinking, how silly it is. Because what's lying behind that is a sort of thing that, well, old folk in the olden days and in prehistoric times used to believe that people came back to life. But as modern scientific people don't believe stuff like that, it's just these nuts Christians that, that really belong in a two thousand year old history warp that believe that. But what nonsense! Because if Alice, Edward, Alice Roberts had been saying dead people don't come back to life, Thomas would be saying, "I agree." That's a problem. And, and Cleopas on the road to Emmaus would be nodding his head. And Mary, devastated at the foot of the cross and then coming into the garden and finding a t- would have said, yeah, yeah, I know that. Because here's the thing. Ancient people weren't stupid. They'd lost lots of friends. Lots of people had died. And how many of them had come back to life? Zero. They knew people didn't come back to life as well. They knew this was impossible. And the Christian claim is not that dead people come back to life. It's that this one time, the God who made the rules of science, the God who made the laws of physics, broke them. You know, we might equally say, just a little reminder today, you can't make something out of nothing except just this one time we call it creation the scientists call it the big bang everything came out of nothing that much we know it had to at some point and so What we are claiming as Christians is not that dead people come back to life. We are claiming that just as that one creation event or big bang, call it what you want, brought the whole of the universe into being, so God brought a new creation into being with a big bang level event in the resurrection. One man rose from the dead. Paul says, one man. And that's the promise that the day will come when that will be the first fruits. Of the resurrection of the dead. Hmm. But what about now? Hallelujah, death defeated, God triumphant, yes. But yet, we still live and walk and journey in a difficult place. And it's interesting that the gospel stories, you might think that the gospel stories after the trauma of the, the, the crucifixion would tell us wonderful stories about the resurrection, how everyone was happy, how all the world was changed. But not one of the gospels does that. They all have stories of struggle. Luke has this story. John tells the story of doubting Thomas. And then the story we'll look at tonight as we're, as we're having our first suppers, the story of Peter who felt unforgiven until the Lord appeared to him again. And Matthew, at the end of his gospel, says that the risen Lord gathered his disciples, gave them a commission, and they believed. And then he adds, but some doubted. And so even the gospel stories say that after the resurrection, it didn't mean everything was everything was easy for folk. There is in the gospels a tremendous pastoral sensitivity to saying, actually, Christian life is hard. Yes, this is good news. Yes, this changes everything. Yes, we have this hope. But we also need the presence of the risen Lord coming alongside us as we travel together. Because for now, in the not yet, it's still going to be a struggle. Jesus comes and says to them, what were you discussing on the road? Now, obviously, Jesus knows, and the Reader knows Jesus knows, but it's as if Jesus is saying, not just, I'm alive, have a sticker, get over it, but He's saying, tell me, tell me the struggle, tell me the hearts, tell me the questions as we journey together. But overshadowing all of this is something that we mustn't lose sight of. It is the cross, There are two figures here. One is called Cleopas. We don't have the name of the other one. It's just possible we can work it out, though, because in the Gospel of John, we are told at the foot of the cross was a woman called Mary who was the wife of a Cleopas. Now, if it's the same Cleopas, we know his wife's name, and it's possible that this was Mary and Cleopas walking along the road. If that's the case, then Mary had actually been there at the foot of the cross, watching Jesus die. There are so many Marys in the Gospels it can get a bit confusing at times, but it... you see, the cross was utterly crushing. It wasn't just that Jesus had died, it was the way that Jesus had died. Now, I could rehearse the medical facts of what it means to hang on a cross. I'm not going to do that because you've probably heard that before. Safe to say it was excruciating. In fact, that word excruciating comes from the Latin. I don't have any Latin. I read it in a book. Ex crux, which literally means like on the cross, the crux. Excruciating it was to die on a cross. And it would take, in some cases, days of that pain before you died. But it wasn't just that, it was the humiliation. In the city of Rome, near the Palatine Hill, a bit of graffiti was found. And the graffiti had a picture of a man hanging on a cross, and the man had a donkey's head. And the Greek text underneath simply said, Alexandros worships his God. What it was saying was this, a man on a cross is not a god, he's an ass. And that was pretty much how the ancient world would have looked at things. Crucifixion wasn't just a horrible crime that you did to people you didn't like. It was a crime reserved for slaves. It was a crime reserved, it was a punishment rather, reserved by the Romans. They called it the ultimate punishment, the extreme penalty. And it wasn't just to say you're guilty of some dreadful crime. It was actually to say more than that. It was to say, you are worthless. You are the bottom of the heap. We don't care. We are going to destroy you and forget you. And you are totally and utterly worthless. It was never inflicted on Roman citizens. It was only for the lowest of the low. At one point, about A.D. 61, so not not, not that long after, a senator in Rome was killed by one of his household slaves. And what they did was they crucified every slave in the household. 400 men, women, and children were taken out and crucified. Why did they do that? They didn't do that to punish them. They knew that most of them had nothing to do with it at all. It was just the one man. They did that to assert the social order. These people are nothing. They are property. They are barbarians. They are worthless. It wasn't a punishment. It was a story that told in symbolic terms of who was boss and who was not. The barbarian, sorry, the Babylonians had used something similar. The Persians before them had impaled their enemies. The cross was a statement. You see, we take for granted in our day that this idea that everybody's equal. Ancient societies didn't do that. That's a Christian idea that has stayed around in our Western culture. Actually, most ancient cultures had no concept of everybody being equal. Why are they equal? Some are richer, some are wiser, some are stronger, some are of better races, whatever it was that was there. And so they were asserting the social order in that place. There was a pyramid structure of who mattered. At the top of it were the gods, and they were supremely powerful. And so, you begin to see the story where these two men say, we thought Jesus was powerful. We saw the miracles and the signs, and we thought He was the power that was going to come and redeem Israel but he turns out to be a crucified man, an ass on a cross. And if it was difficult or impossible for a Roman to think of a powerful God ending up on a cross, it was even harder for a Jew because they didn't just believe that gods were powerful characters. They believed one God, creator of heaven and earth who had made all things by his hand. And here it was that that God Was on a cross. Paul wrote this Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. You have to see the cross to understand that. The cross, it actually takes quite a lot for us 2,000 years on to get what this meant. Because we have had a whole religious tradition of seeing the cross as a symbol of power, haven't we? Constantine, the emperor, the pagan emperor, when he became a Christian, became a Christian because he saw a vision which said, by this sign, you will conquer. And he went and won a battle. How far is that away from what Jesus went through? When King Charles is crowned in a few weeks' time, he will be given an orb which will have a cross on it. And that's a symbol, actually, of the world under the power of the cross. But it will actually, in a king's hand, that always has has spoken about the regal power of the king as a viceroy of God. You'll see that cross on the staffs and the, the various other things that are presented to him. Or we can think of the crusaders with their crosses, their swords, their power. But how far is that from where it all began? But actually, even today, we actually quite like the idea of a powerful Christianity. We think the world should respect the church and should respect Christians, and Christians should have rights and power and influence. And if only we were in charge of the world, how much better it would be. But how far is that from a Jesus who was crucified? Jesus is risen. But our faith doesn't tend to pin little badges of an empty tomb on its lapels. It pins the cross. Jesus didn't say, take up your empty tomb and follow me. He said, take up your cross in all its humility and its shame and its suffering and follow me. You know, this is a complete reorientation of of power and expectation. And that is what Jesus would have been explaining to those men as He went through the Scriptures on the road to Emmaus. They'd look for a powerful leader, a Messiah, one who would come and sort out the world. And instead of that, they'd found out one who had come with all the power and had given it completely up. It's interesting that the Gospels tell the same story as, as Jesus went through with his disciples. Remember, every time he did a miracle and they thought, yes, this is it. And he said, shut up. Don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody I'm the Messiah. Don't tell anybody. That's not how people have to see the power. They have not to see the power till after Easter. And then he would talk about suffering, his own suffering, as they went towards Jerusalem, to the capital city where they thought he was going to become a king. And as, they told him about, as he told them about his suffering and him going to die, what did Peter say? No, that's not the vision. That's not the plan. We want power. James and John said, let's sit on your right-hand side and your left-hand side. And they didn't mean somewhere up in the sky and the clouds. They meant in Jerusalem, on a throne, in charge of stuff. If us disciples could run the world, wouldn't it be better? Now, how many times have Christians thought that? only we were in charge and we could make the rules and we could have the power and we could sort things out, it would all be better. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You're thinking the things of men and not the things of God. Now, don't get me wrong. The resurrection is a glorious victory of God, a defeat of death, the defeat of hell. The sure and the certain assurance of the new creation that bursts in that will change everything. But it's also a complete reorientation of our idea of what power and success is. And it always shadows us as we walk through the pain. We started off this service singing Because He Lives. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. Life is worth the living just because he lives. I struggle with that song. And I'll tell you why. And it's because of the second verse. How sweet to hold a newborn baby and feel the joy and pride he brings. Now, my problem with that verse isn't that it's saccharine, although it is. My problem with that verse is that very early in my ministry, when I went to my church, one of the first things I was faced with was a young couple who lost a baby. And we had a funeral service, and they chose that hymn. And I sat with them and said, do you realize what you're asking us to sing? And they said, yes, we want to sing it. And through tears, we sang those words. How sweet to hold the newborn baby that then went on. But we can go on and we can have assurance because he lives. And that is the only way to see the joy of the resurrection. It's the only way to see the joy of the resurrection. It's to walk on the Emmaus road because Jesus comes into all the suffering and the pain of the world in weakness and in questions. And in that, He brings His resurrection promise that all will be well. This is not triumphalism. Come to God and it'll all be sorted. This is walk in the shadow of the cross. Jesus in this story comes alongside them walks the walk of pain with them. And Jesus begins to explain Moses and the prophets. They do a Bible study. And a Bible study, by the way, this is so important. We don't do Bible studies to learn facts about Moses and the prophets. We do Bible studies as part of life to work out what it's about, how it fits together into God's big plan and our brokenness. And that's what they do is they begin to see that God's plan from the beginning to heal the world was that he was going to take on the pain Himself. The sacrificial system pointed to the guilt that needed to be forgiven. The Messiah that was promised was to be a king and a hero. Yes, all of those things are in the Old Testament, but he's also to be the suffering servant who takes on the pain of the world. And then, once they had had the walk with Jesus and they invited him into their homes, not knowing fully who he was. He took the bread, and He broke it, and gave thanks, and gave it to them. He took, He gave, He broke, He gave thanks. The verbs that are used there are exactly the same verbs that are used at the Last Supper. And they're exactly the same verbs that have been used in a billion communi- communion services since. Because we keep coming back to remembering the cross, where only there do we see the joy of the resurrection. And it's not just in the communion, it's also just in the sharing together, in the coming together, in the, in the fish that they had by Galilee and we'll enjoy later on this evening. There we find the risen Jesus among us. That's what we're looking for. That's what we believe. Amen.